Welcome to Picked Voices, the interview series conducted by the faculty of the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking with notable members of the broader PIC community. Our goal is to present our community with a variety of voices across the spectrum of the humanities and critical creative thinking. Now, as some listeners might be aware, here at Picked Voices, we have in the past months mainly talked about a manifold of facets and aspects that have been connected to or affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. With the pandemic slowly diminishing here in Europe, hopefully dying out completely, we have decided to redirect our focus in some of our podcasts to other aspects of daily life that require a critical eye and voice. And today we would like to direct this gaze at an institute that is somewhat akin to PICT, but which has been going through some very harsh times. As education and free research is obviously PICT's main field of interest, we felt the need to dig a little bit deeper. The institute I'm talking about is the Serbian Institute for Philosophy and Social Theory from the University of Belgrade. My name is Christoph van Houten, and today I am joined by Andrea Perumovic, research associate at the Institute for Philosophy and Social Theory of the University of Belgrade. Hello, Andrea, and welcome. Hello, and thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, before uh, we start our analysis of the troubled waters that the Institute has been trying to sail and navigate in these past months, almost two years by now, I think it would be interesting for our listeners if you quickly sketched the history of Belgrade's Institute for Philosophy and Social Theory. I think this will also give a good context or horizon against which we can interpret the recent events. Yes, Christoph. In fact, the historical frame in which the Institute developed over the years, the circumstances in which it was founded, are decisive for the understanding of what is going on to us today. So I will, I will just try to briefly summarize the now already quite long and often turbulent and intense history of the Institute. So back in 1981 in Belgrade, which was in that time the capital of Socialist Federative Republic of Yugoslavia, was first founded the Center for Philosophy and Social Theory. This center that was initially a part of the larger Institute for Social Research will become um, 11 years later in 1992, the Institute for Philosophy and Social Theory as we know it today. But Let's see why it is important to start from the very beginning. It is because the Center for Philosophy and Social Theory, the one created in 1981, was nothing like an ordinary institution. It was rather a sort of counter institution, a state institution that is counter the state for the state's own benefit, you see? A place where anything could be a subject of critique and where everyone is faithfully engaged in theoretical exploration of social reality. Let's see now how that looked concretely. The Center for Philosophy and Social Theory was created as a refuge for eight professors expelled from the Belgrade's Faculty of Philosophy after having been first labeled as dangerous dissident group during the student protest in May 68. Years took for the Yugoslav regime to figure out 
what they will do with those dissidents that were presumably dangerous for the student, but on the other hand, too important and internationally acknowledged intellectuals to be just simply fired. After years of struggle, and even after an eventual dismissal of dissidents from the University of Belgrade, the international support for those people became too big. Coming both from international intellectuals like Noam Chomsky, Jürgen Habermas, or Ernst Brock, that all wrote letters in, in that moment to the Yugoslav regime, and also from the international workers' organizations. So the group of dissidents had to be brought back eventually to their academic workplaces. In 1981, that gave rise to the Center for Philosophy and Social Theory. Now, one could ask, who were those people and why they were so important for that the state needed to create a wholly new institution only in order to create jobs for them? Those dissident professors, I will tell you their names. There was Zagor Kogolubovic, Mikhailo Markovic, Drago Ljubmichinovic, Neboj Shapopov, Svetozar Stojanovic, Ljubomir Tadic, and Miladin Životic were all members of the so-called Praxis Group. Praxis Group was a group of philosophers, a peculiar group of philosophers, sociologists, and anthropologists from Yugoslavia that was involved in developing Praxis philosophy, a philosophy that was a specific blend of critical, humanist, and socialist thought. Praxis philosophy tended overall to show, on a non-dogmatic and creative way, that the human praxis fundamentally constitutes the human understanding of the world, and that there is a tight relation between that thesis and the humanist approach to freedom, as it is formulated by young Karl Marx. The most notable outlets of the Praxis Group work were in those times their summer school, the famous Korčula summer school, which took place for 10 years in a row on the Croatian island of Korčula, and where participants could attend lectures of intellectuals like Jürgen Habermas, Anish Heller, Henri Lefebvre, Herbert Marcuse, Ernst Bloch, Sigmund Baumann, or Judith Butler, amongst others. Also, there was a scientific journal named simply Praxis, which served as a follow-up of the summer school. Afterwards, the journal Praxis will become Praxis International and continue to publish works of worldly renowned scholars until the mid-90s, with the chief editors from Yugoslavia and abroad. Namely, some of them were Richard Bernstein or Sheila Ben-Abib. As the years were passing, the center was growing in spite of constant political pressure, censored lectures, and even arrests. So I will speed up now in time a little bit to show you the following thing. As the number of its researchers increased in 1992, it will become finally the Institute for Philosophy and Social Theory. Once again, the Institute served as a refuge for many thinkers that had problems with authorities, but also with some thinkers that were too young and thus didn't have the occasion to experience those problems. We shouldn't forget 
that those were the years when the Yugoslavia was breaking apart and the war has started. Most of the researchers from the Institute were intensely involved in the protests against Milosevic regimes. Some of them were in the anti-war movements, other got involved in political parties, etc. The engagement of the members of the Institute in the formal political structures was even more real after the fall of Milosevic in October 2000. Amongst them, for example, Dragoljub Michunovic, who was the founder of the, one of the founders of the Democratic Party, Vojslav Kostunica, who became the president of Yugoslavia from 2000 to 2003, and afterwards prime minister, and also Zoran Djindjic, prime minister of Serbia from 2001 to 2003, when he got assassinated. So the political engagement of the members of the institutes was sure, surely it was a good thing to do in the times the, that were unstable and harsh, like the 90s, or transitional as, as were the 2000s. But that wasn't enough, uh, that, wasn't, that wasn't without consequences for the research results of the Institute. So we will have to wait for, um, for the second decade, let's say, of the 2000s to, to see the Institute regaining its former international reputation and even, even sur surpassing it. In the last 10 years, the number of publica publications projects and conferences has significantly increased. The number, the number of researchers today counts 38, amongst which they, there are scholars from diverse disciplines, many young researchers, many people that came back in Serbia from abroad with a doctoral degrees to work at the Institute, which is a rare thing in Serbia. Most of the people just go away mm. and never return. Today, we are focused on an intense scientific research that will assure a critical approach to the social reality and formulate theoretically founded modes of engagement. Thus, we can say that practically, Christoph, we are resting faithful to the ideas that formed this institute from the very beginning. Yes, uh, thanks. So, so this is, is a quite a, a big history uh, resumed in a nutshell. And, and so if we Go on from that. Could you maybe also tell us now what has been happening in the past uh, years? Uh, some information has filtered through internationally, but I think most people and even uh, most academics will not be very much aware or knowledgeable of the recent happening. In the more specialized media, I only saw something in the blog of the Lighter Report and then a message in Daily News. And, but also in the regular media, there have been some, some things like in the Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung. But I believe that silence and, and silencing here is actually a very good ally of one party. Uh, but could, so could you please uh, tell the listeners what, what has been going on with this uh, institute? It seems that the stereotype of history repeating itself is true this time. The Institute for Philosophy and Social Theory has been in, in a, some kind of a state of emergency, so to say, for more than a year now. The reason for that are political pressures instrumented by the regime in order to muzzle 
the Institute to put it on some kind of a political leash. For more than a year now, our academic autonomy has been in question. And to be more precise, from the moment all the members of the Institute unanimously supported the civil protests against the ruling regime. The concrete mechanism of government muzzling the Institute uh, subsided in appointing a new governing board of the Institute that includes several highly controversial political figures and also appointing an, in our view, problematic acting director. Now, was the appointment of this new board uh, an interruption of the already existing board or did the former board uh, come to a natural end, so to say? Yes, no, actually the mandate of the previous board ended in November 2018. Okay. But since then, we were in some kind of a legal vacuum and we were functioning without the official highest governing instant, instance of the institution. The new governing board never, never met, actually. It was appointed, but they never met. It was appointed a few months after the dismissal of the, of the previous one. And so the next governing board was appointed only, I think, in March 2018. And, and, and from then on, never met. So, so we, didn't have, uh, don't, we didn't have the rights to, to, to approve our financial plan, our program, etc. Okay. So, also, so the, mandate, the mandate of our previous director ended in December 2019. And the acting director was appointed only 20, 25 days later. Okay. So, so if the board and the director had to change, why do you think that these appointments are wrong or at least not appropriate? For, for example, Zoran Avramovic, the nominated president of the governing board of the institute, was promoted to official leading positions in the Ministry of Education by the right-wing radical party of Vojslav Šešelj, the man who was sentenced by, by, by Hague Trib Tribunal. Mm. Also, Avramovic has already intimated, intimated what he thinks of the Institute when he urged for suspension of financing for the Institute's regional center in, in Novi Sad, in another town in, in the north of Serbia. Mm. And, but on the other hand, the, the current acting director was using already repressive measures that indicate what the future of the Institute could look like. He were, there were threats to suspend salaries, attempts to curb the freedom of the Institute's scientific council, junior researchers that were put under pressure. There were also suspensions of international projects and so on. So you can figure out the, the way of leading an administration, which is not, not quite, quite um, appropriate to, to, to what the Institute is and should look like. Yeah. Now, these people that have been appointed uh, by the Ministry of Education, do they have any uh, special academic credits or are they merely politicians or bureaucrats? And if I may uh, quickly add mm -hmm. one more question, if they have academic merits, is their research minimally related 
to the research done at the institute, or is it a clear hostile movement by by the uh, government? Hey, it's both of that actually. They do have academic merits, mm -hmm. but for example, we remarked that the president of the governing board, the appointed president of the governing board, Zoran Abramovich, in spite of having the title of scientific advisor, which is, by the way, the highest title in our scientific hierarchy, mm. he has never practically published in international journals, which is, you will admit, a bit intriguing, you know? <laughs> Besides that, uh, Ramovich is also a professor in Belgrade's Megatrend University, a private university that is broadly known as a factory of suspicious diplomas and questionable standard of academic studies. On the other hand, the, other, the, the acting director uh, has a title of senior research fellow, but never had actually any experience in leading projects mm. or leading international projects. And so naturally, even less in leading an institution like our institute that is involved in a number of prestigious international projects. So yes, both of them fulfill the legal and the legalistic standards of being in those positions. Mm. But like you, as you can see, their appointment can nonetheless be seen exclusively as a hostile move. Mm -mm -mm. Now, for as much as you have gone through this tough period, at the same time, it has also shown uh, the, the great admiration that uh, a lot of international scholars have for the institution. Now, you have had a great amount of international support. Yeah, yes, yes, of course. There was a, I must say that there was a tremendous international support. A few weeks ago, we have launched an international call for solidarity, a petition that has been signed by around 500 most renowned scholars in the fields of humanities and social science. If you permit, I will, I will list only some of them here so our listeners could get the picture of the amplitude of the feedback. And it's very wide range. Mm. So while some of the names were Jürgen Habermas, Noam Chomsky, Judith Butler, Axel Honneth, Etienne Balibar, Thomas Piketty, Francis Fukuyama, Yuval Noah Harari, Michael Walzer, Nancy Fraser, Richard Bernstein, Jacques Rancière, Antonio Negri, Barbara Cassin, Marta Nussbaum, Sheila Benabib, Hartmut Rosa, Frederick Jameson, Ashir Mbembe, Maurizio Ferraris, and so on and so on. Jean-Luc Marion, Roberto Esposito, Jonathan Wolf, Jeffrey C. Alexander, many, many others. Yeah, like we did from Pict. <laughs> yeah. And of course, of course, and like many signed that support uh, and we could never, never be more thankful to each and every one of them. Yeah, and especially considering that all of this was happening uh, in the in, in, in the core of this Corona virus, I think this solidarity is even more important. But uh, please continue. Yeah, well, I, I would like to stress also that, yeah, you're right, you're right. But Actually, there was there was another thing that was, that was also very interesting. Noam Chomsky personally wrote a letter to the Serbian president Aleksandar Vucic in order to draw his attention to our case, to the importance of academic freedoms and democracy in a broader sense. 
Francis Fukuyama also tweeted about our, about our situation and was a guest by video link on one Serbian television, also addressing our situation and the overall political circumstances in Serbia. All that was nonetheless mainly covered by media. So Frankfurter and Allgemeine Zeitung, as you mentioned, wrote about us, but also Le Monde, the French Le Monde, and many other foreign and Serbian media were informing the public about our case. All those factors, I must say, have created a situation in which academic issues became inevitably important, even if just temporarily and, and locally. And academia, we must admit, it's not an everyday concern for governments and mainstream media anywhere in the world. And mm. I must say, much less in Serbia. But with the international support that the Institute for Philosophy and Social Theory has got, we all together succeeded to rise the stakes of academic freedom, even if only for a moment. And even if the consequences of our action are seemingly local, the action itself could be considered as a small victory on a global scale. On the case of our institute, we can clearly see that the international solidarity is still a paradigm that we should preserve when it comes to defending academic freedoms. Yeah, here, 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 here to that. Now, what has the reaction been of the government after all this international uh, publicity and support? Mm -hmm. the, the reaction was the only possible and the only imaginable one. After, after such events, our basic demands were starting to be heard at last, thanks to the solidarity, I must repeat. And around 10 days ago, the previous impossible governing board with Zoran Abramovich as president was dissolved, and the new one is appointed by the Serbian government. I will tell you now why that's good news. The president of our governing board is now Ivan Vejvoda who is a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna, former senior vice president for programs at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. He also from 2003 to 2010 has served as executive director of German Marshall Fund's Balkan Trust for Democracy, a project dedicated to strengthening democratic institutions in Southeastern Europe. So somebody no. knows, yeah. knows the Balkans. It's somebody who is from the Balkans, who knows the Balkans, and who has a great experience in leading, leading projects, leading programs, organizing uh, complex institutional dispositions that, that, that are seeming to, to our institute. Mm -hmm. But also it's important that, that even Vejvoda in the 90s was a key figure of the democratic, one of the key figures at least, of the democratic opposition movement in Yugoslavia. And he published widely on the subjects of democratic transition, totalitarianism, and post-war reconstruction in the Balkans. It is interesting that he also, for instance, translated from French to Serbian some works of Jacques Derrida or Rousseau. In some sense, we, we could conclude that we have got and it's funny to think about that now, but we have 
got the opposite of what we have been obliged to expect. So yes, it may sound a bit romantic, but the substantial change in some sometimes it is possible. <laughs> yeah, and and what do you think is going to happen next, or or what is already happening, and what are the plans of the future of the institute? The next step, <laughs> the the next basic demand that uh, we saw as central and non-negotiable from the very beginning, is a transparent and open competition for the position of the director of the institute. And actually, as as we speak, this uh, this concourse, this uh, this uh, competition has been publicly opened right now. And then, after after the 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 new director is is chosen and appointed, we could finally close this turbulent chapter of the institute's history and and move on. And our plan for the future is to continue where we have stopped or maybe rather slow down before all this happened, which means continuing and intensifying our respective and collective researches and projects, organizing high quality lectures and conferences, continuing and improving our publishing activities, etc. In brief, we will continue trying to, to bring to Serbia the best of world's humanities and social sciences and vice versa. Our plan for the future is to prove that in the so-called normal circumstances, we still deserve the support that we got in the time of crisis. Well, thanks for this, Andrea. And uh, right, thank you. I have been a guest at your institute a number of times, and indeed it would have been a great loss worldwide, but I think especially an incredible loss for the Balkans if the Institute for Philosophy and Social Science would have disappeared or even simply would have lost its spirit. Luckily, however, this is no longer or this does no longer seem to be the case. This, however, I think doesn't mean that we need to stop being vigil. Uh, the Corona pandemic has given quite a good view into the importance that is being given to education for today's political leaders. It is either something that can function as a means to improve or channel their own ideology, like what they attempted to do with your institute, Andrea, or if this is not an option, then it can simply be dismantled. Now, when I think about the fact that even during the Second World War, schools were not closed, I get incredible shivers uh, down my spine when I think about the importance that is given to education today. Anyway, before I start rambling too much, Thanks again, Andrea, for sharing the story of Belgrade's important institute for philosophy and social theory. And it was especially insightful to see that, at least for the moment, the relentlessness of which you guys have uh, fought and rebelled has given you the upper hand. Well done and keep up the fight, I would say. And with this, one more episode of Picked Voices has come to an end. Thank you all for listening. My name is Christoph van Houten and I hope to be seeing Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrea. I hope to be seeing you all face to face very soon at PICT or somewhere else. Thank you and goodbye.